Good morning, everybody. Have you been enjoying the snow? Yes? Oh. Well, over the last few weeks, we must have spent about 20 hours just shoveling, shoveling, shoveling. Often, you know, five hours at a time. So it's... Was it yesterday morning, sure, we had the snow just coming down our way? Did you have it um, Friday? It just came down so heavy. Did anyone else have the snow Friday morning? And this morning? Yeah, we had some too. Yeah. Oh, well. John chapter 2 and uh, verse 13. Uh, the subtitle in my Bible here is the first Passover, the cleansing of the temple. So verse 13 says, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover was also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it began on the 15th day of the month of Nisan, which typically falls in March or April. And it's a spring festival, it lasts for seven days. So it starts on the evening of the 14th because the Jewish day, of course, began at sundown. And uh, so that was the beginning of the 15th day with a sacrificial meal. I want to read a, a couple of um, days of reading from, what was that book called? Um, the, book of, uh, the Book of Mysteries. Yes. Um, Leslie's reading it. She just remarked this morning how she's loving it. Book of Mystery. So this um, is day 361, the mystery of the pluralities. We stood on, a f on the flat top roof of one of the school buildings from which we took in a vast panorama of the surrounding desert landscape. Today, said the teacher, we bring together the pluralities, those mystery words of Hebrew that can only be expressed in the plural. Tell me what you remember of them. Elohim, I said, the word for God. God who transcends all things and all that we think he is. Achaim, the word for life. That life is more than life, this life, and in God is unending. Rakamim, the love of God, his mercy and compassion. That there is no limiting of God's mercy and no end to his love. Shamayim, the word for heaven, <coughs> that there's always more to heaven than you think there is. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of God, that there are always two Jerusalems, the one you see and the one which is beyond seeing, that which is and that which is yet to come. Do you see any pattern, he asked, anything that binds them all together? They all bear the property of transcendence. They do, he said. And together they bear another revelation. Shayim, life everlasting. Where will we spend it? In Shamayim, heaven. Where specifically? Yerushalayim, in the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, which is yet to come. And what will be flowing in that city? Mayim, yet another of the pluralities, the river of living waters. And what will fill up the new Jerusalem? The Panim, the face of God. And what will be the essence of heaven that fills uh, every moment, Rakamim, the infinite, overflowing, never-ending love of God. And what will it all center on? It will all center on Elohim, God. For what are all the pluralities about? That which is beyond 
and so they will all be part of the beyond. They will tell us that the things of God are beyond containing and beyond the end. God is beyond all that is spoken of him, beyond all that is thought and imagined of him, and beyond all the praises that are lifted to him. He is beyond even the beyond. For his love to us, his love to you, has no limits and no end. It is beyond all things from everlasting to everlasting. And then in day 159 talks about Jerusalem or Jerusalem. Over there, said the teacher, beyond those mountains, far beyond them, is the city of Jerusalem. That's the direction in which the Jewish people have prayed for ages to the holy city. I've never been there, I said. I've heard it's no, uh, like no other place. It's a city of rocks on the edge of a desert. And yet there's something about it, a beauty, a glory, an awesomeness one can't quite put into words. And in no other place, the mystery is in its name. The name Jerusalem, its real name, Jerusalem. Notice what it ends with. The I am, so the word is plural. Yes, so Jerusalem doesn't really mean Jerusalem, but Jerusalem's. And the mystery goes deeper. It's not just an I am at the end, but an A-Y-I-M, a unique ending that speaks specifically of duality as in two. In other words, Jerusalem means the two Jerusalems. What are the two Jerusalems? They are the Jerusalem you see and the Jerusalem you don't. The Jerusalem that is and the Jerusalem that is yet to become. Jerusalem the earthly and Jerusalem the heavenly. Jerusalem of time and space and Jerusalem the beautiful and the glorious. And the mystery of Jerusalem has everything to do with you. For if you belong to God, you are a child of Jerusalem, a child of Jerusalem, therefore you share in her nature. How? As it is with Jerusalem, so is your life. Your life is an am. It means there's always more to it than you see with your eyes. There are two realms, two lives, the life you see and the life you don't see, the person you are and the person you are yet to be, you the earthly and you the heavenly, you the imperfect and flawed and you the perfect and beautiful and the glorious. So no matter what you think of your life, in God the truth is always more than better. And even in your lowest places there's the glory, a glory beyond anything you see or feel or understand and am a duality, and therefore a choice. Choose therefore not to live by the earthly, but the heavenly. Believe not what is, but what is yet to be. Dwell not in the flawed, but the perfect. For you are the Jerusalem of God, his Jerusalem. Anyway, interesting thoughts. But aren't you glad there's more to life than what we're seeing around us in this world today? The news, I mean, what's going on? whether it's in South America or whether it's in Europe or the Middle East, it's just chaos, chaos, chaos. So, the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, all right? The, the Jerusalem that could be seen, the temple of Jerusalem. So when a word is, uh, a Hebrew word finishes in I am, this is our English uh, rendering of it, uh, it speaks of the plural. But A-Y-I-M is a unique ending speaking of duality as in two. So Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which means Jerusalems, uh, the Jerusalem you see and the Jerusalem you don't see, the Jerusalem that is earthly, the Jerusalem that is heavenly, the Jerusalem that is temporal, 
the Jerusalem that is eternal. And uh, so these plural words, uh, Elohim, which means gods. In the beginning, God, Elohim, uh, made the heavens and the earth. Uh, Chaim, life. Rakimin, the love of God or the loves of God. Uh, Shamayim, heaven. Mayim, river of living waters. Panim, the face of God, the faces of God. Um, God reveals himself in many different ways. So let me just repeat again a, a paragraph from one of those re uh, readings. What are all the pluralities about? That which is beyond. And so they will be part of the beyond. And they tell us that the things of God are beyond containing and beyond the end. God is beyond all that is spoken of God, beyond all that is thought and imagined of him, and beyond all the praises that are lifted to him. He is beyond even the beyond. For his love to us, his love to you, has no limits and no end. It is beyond all things from everlasting to everlasting. So we, it's, we really can't comprehend what God is like, can we, in one sense? I mean, no matter... It's, it's going to take eternal ages for us to understand what God is like and, and for everlasting to everlasting to everlasting. Our little minds can't really comprehend everything. But thank God, Jesus, God with us, came amongst us to reveal what, what he is like. Wonderful. Well, verse 14 of John chapter 2. And Jesus found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he said to those who were selling the doves, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, but he found the temple looking more like a cattle yard. Just think of it. Let me just quote from an, another source. The sale of cattle, sheep and doves, and the privilege of exchanging money were permitted in the temple court as a convenience for the pilgrims who would need animals for sacrifices and temple shekels for their purchases. Under the chief priests, however, the concessions had become merely a way to make money and had debased the temple into a commercial venture. Furious, Jesus drove out the cattle and sheep. He scattered the coins of the unscrupulous money changers and he shouted at those who were selling doves. The scene was one of chaos and confusion. Just, just imagine it. The animals would have been bawling and running around and the money changers would have been scrambling to pick up their money off the floor or the ground. Jesus was passionate. He had come to assert the claims of God upon his own nation and he keenly felt the spiritual indifference which had turned worship into a means of profit. So there was an allowance for animals to be sold, coins to be exchanged, changed, because people came from different nations and some of the coins had the inscriptions of you know, wrong things on them. And uh, the Jews didn't want that money being used for uh, the right purchases. And so there was a shekel and there was the half shekel or there was the half shekel tax that everyone had to pay each year. And so there were money changers who would exchange foreign, foreign countries for silver coins from Tyre 
to pay for their statutory, statutory annual half-shekel Jews at the Jerusalem temple. Verse 18, oh, we've read that. Verse 19, Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. Verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus knew the hearts of people like Nathaniel, like we saw in the video clip a couple of weeks ago. John 1, 47 to 48, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus didn't need anyone to tell him what man was like. He knew. And it amazes me that um, he chose the Judas. John six seventy and 71, Jesus said, Did I not myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Shirley often says, you know, he had the money money bag and uh, he was stealing from it but Jesus never rebuked him to our knowledge just knew what was going on but didn't do anything about it and sometimes when we do things we shouldn't be doing and we seem to get away with it then it encourages us perhaps to keep on doing those sorts of things uh, Luke 6.16 speaks of Judas the son of James and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor uh, John 12 4-6 uh, speaking of Mary and the costly perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he was, he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box. He used to pilfer what was put into it. And then John thirteen twenty seven, when Jesus uh, gave uh, Judas the morsel, after the morsel, Satan entered into him. And then he went out and he betrayed Jesus. <clears throat> I thought you'd appreciate this memo from the Jordan Management Consultants in Jerusalem uh, to Jesus, son of Joseph, woodcraft, a carpenter shop, Nazareth. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of, your, of the 12 men you have picked for the management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests. We have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. Did you know they had computers in those days? <laughs> it is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, 
education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities for leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. A Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both register a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely yours, Jordan Management Consultants. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? Oh, my. But Jesus knew the hearts, and he knew what was in the heart of Judas. Well, how do we apply these, these, these truths, like Passover, for instance, in our own lives? 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. Uh, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, and so on, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. We have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ to obey him and be sprinkled with his blood. Uh, true followers of Jesus are those who obey him, uh, those who are aware of the continual cleansing of the blood of Jesus where that blood needs to be applied. We need the blood of Jesus to be applied to our lives. We need a personal cleansing from sin and demonic influences. First John chapter 1, verse 9 if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Can you say the rest? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's one thing to be forgiven. It's another thing to be cleansed when you think about it. So sanctification, holiness, is a position and it's a process in all of our lives. If we were suddenly to, to, to die right now, um, Thank God, God sees us righteous. He sees us as holy ones uh, in his sight because of the blood of Jesus that's been applied to our lives. It's a position, but it's also a process. As we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality, 
that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honour, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before you and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's ponder for a moment the fact that we are made up of three parts, spirit, soul, and body. We are a triune being. God is a triune being. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we have been made in his image and in his likeness. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we see, mentioning the fact that um, spirit, soul, and body. We, a tripartite being. Let's consider for a moment the tabernacle of Moses. Exodus 25, 8 and 9, God said to Moses, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and of the pattern of all its furniture, so, so shall you construct it. And then in Hebrews chapter 8, uh, verse 2 um, speaks of a, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man, speaking of our great high priest, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect a tabernacle, to see he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. It was quite specific in Exodus on more than one occasion. As you make this tabernacle, make it according to the pattern. According to the pattern. According to the pattern. You see, just as there is an earthly Jerusalem, there's a heavenly Jerusalem. Just as there was an earthly tabernacle, there was and is a heavenly tabernacle. And so God was quite specific. It has to be made according to the pattern, according to the pattern, according to the pattern, according to the pattern. Why? Because the earthly tabernacle was to be a copy or shadow of that tabernacle that is in the heavens. Now, if we're outside, it's a lovely day, the sun is shining, and we notice the shadow of a tree, we look at the shadow, but as we follow the shadow, we see that which casts the shadow. And uh, the tree looks much nicer than the shadow. You'd agree? Just imagine a beautiful, beautiful diamond ring, and, and the, the sun was reflecting on that, and we see the shadow on a wall, perhaps. Well, the shadow may be okay, but... The real thing, the diamond ring itself, is much, much, much more beautiful than the shadow that's on the wall. Make sure you make things according to the pattern. So the outer court of the tabernacle measured 100 cubits by 50 cubits wide. There was a wall, a linen wall around it, five cubits high. And uh, this um, contained the altar of burnt offering, the laver in the tabernacle, the holy place and the table of showbread, the golden candlestick, the altar of incense, and the most holy place had the Ark of the Covenant. Now a cubit was measured from the tip of the elbow to the end of the longest finger. So a cubit. And um, approximately 18 inches 
457 millimeters. So the holy place was 20 cubits by tw uh, tw 10 cubits. The most holy place was 10 cubits by 10 cubits. So within the, the wall surrounding the outer court, there was the tent or tabernacle, and that tabernacle was divided into two sections, the holy place and the most holy place. Now the Ark of the Covenant was where God manifested his presence, and as we know, only the high priest could enter into that uh, most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement, and not without incense and not without the sprinkling of the blood of animals. And the time came when there was no longer the need of the tent. There was a temple built by Solomon. But as you read through the Old Testament, and we've been doing this morning by morning, it just amazes us. Uh, the Israelites would go well, they'd be a good king, there'd be good things happening in the land. Then an evil king would come along and the people would slip away and it was just up and down, up and down, up and down. People walking in the light, people walking in great darkness. <clears throat> so often there was a desecration of the temple. The Israelites did not always walk as God had purposed and often backslid to follow after the gods of the surrounding nations. And I think of Solomon himself. What, to me, he's one of the greatest tragedies in the Bible. A man who was given so much, so much wisdom, so much influence, uh, Anything he wanted, he set his heart and he, he did it in, in the limitations of that day. And yet he disobeyed God, which was not wise. And he took multiple wives from other nations and they brought in their gods. Tragic, 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 tragic. Such a good start, but really he went into idolatry and into great sin, which must have grieved the heart very much, God's heart. So... In 2 Kings chapter 21, verses, verses 1 to 18, we read of Manasseh, who reigned 55 years and he did evil. His son Ammon followed, reigned two years, he did evil. But then 2 Kings 22 and 23, we read of Josiah, who reigned for 31 years and he was a good king and he did good things. In fact, if you want to turn over to Second Kings chapter 23 and maybe read it sometime, even, even today, it's really quite shocking as we realize the condition of the land. There was idolatry throughout the land. There was offerings to Moloch, um, the Israelites offering their children to that God. I mean... Verse 4 of Second King, uh, Second Kings 23... Then the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that uh, were made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. He did away with the adult, uh, idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the surrounding area of Jerusalem. Also those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the constellations and to all the hosts of heaven. He brought them out. He brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it to dust and threw its dust on the graves of the common people. 
He also broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes, which were in the house of the Lord, where the women were weaving hangings for the Asherah. I mean, and so it goes on and on and on. The defiling of the temple, the defiling of the land through adultery, through going after other gods. But in one sense, is it any different today? Different circumstances, of course. Uh, different gods that we follow in the Western world. I have a sermon I've, I just preach sometimes, but I don't preach it in countries like Asia where people are involved in idolatry, where idols can be seen everywhere. But it's a message I preach in the West. Idolatry. Because we can have idols in our hearts. We too can be bowing down to idols, serving idols. But when you think of it, think of the church, the condition of the church today. Oh, my, 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 my. Things that have happened in recent days, the last week by one of the main church leaders in the world, uh, signing a covenant with a leading uh, cleric, Islamic cleric, agreeing that they serve the same God. Listen, the God of Islam and the God of Christianity are two different gods all together. I just, well, I can understand why someone would do that, but the blindness and, and all the stuff is being embraced by certain segments of the church. There certainly needs to be a cleansing. And I think you understand what I'm saying. So in that day, under the reign of Josiah, who was a good king, there was a cleansing of the temple and of the land. But let's bring it up today. First Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 15, speaking to believers. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Verse 18 says, flee immorality. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. The tabernacle of Moses in three sections, the outer court, which was the altar of sacrifice, the, 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 the laver. Um, there was the holy place or the most holy place and the holy place part of the, the tabernacle. Um, where did God show up? He showed up in the most holy place. And uh, we are a three-part being. When we think of the tabernacle, outer court, holy place, most holy place. Our body can be likened to the outer court, our soul to the holy place, and our spirit to the most holy place. Because when Jesus comes into our life, he comes to indwell our human spirit. And our spirit is like the most holy place where God takes up residence and God's spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are a child of God. But sadly, there was a defiling on occasion in, in the history of the Israelites, as we just looked at briefly. Tragic. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? As I've just mentioned, our body is like the outer court of the tabernacle. The soul is like the holy place. And the Spirit is like the most holy place where God dwells when we are born again. Yet we can be cleansed, delivered, and healed. Thank God. We can have Jesus in our heart and yet be bound 
in the soul area or in the physical area. 2 Corinthians 7, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. It's not just enough to pray a prayer. Maybe 20 years ago, 2 months ago, 50 years ago, or I prayed the sinner's prayer. Are we following Jesus today? Are we allowing his word to weaken us? Are we allowing the blood of Jesus to cleanse us continually when we need that cleansing? Just a question. I think there are going to be a lot of shocked people when it's time to step out of time into eternity and they realize they're not going to make it to heaven. They've been living on false pretenses. I, I know a man, a dear friend, he's now with the Lord, and um, godly man, lovely man, Used to live in our area, but then he went back to his country of birth. And he had two adult daughters who were not living right. They were involved in wrong relationships. But he was convinced that they were going to go to heaven when they died. Why? Because when they were little girls, they prayed a sinner's prayer. And yet, look at their history. Growing up, fornication, living far from God. But he was convinced they were going to make it to heaven because they prayed that sinner's prayer. I tell you, we need to be cleansed, cleansed daily uh, by the blood of Jesus, where that blood needs to be We need to be choosing a way of, of obedience to God. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, part of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us to pray, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some translations have deliver us from the evil one. The Greek word is the word paneris, which means evil, or the evil one. So both translations are correct. Deliver us from the evil one, deliver us from evil. Why did Jesus teach us to pray that way? Because he knew it was possible for a believer to be bound by the evil one. If it wasn't possible, why would Jesus teach us to pray, Father, deliver us from the evil one? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity or as the authorized version says, do not give the devil a place. It's the Greek word topos from which we get words like topography that speak of an exact geographical location. Uh, there's an anger that's obviously not sinful. Jesus was angry when he overturned the tables of the money changers, when he made that scourge and, and, and drove out the money changers. He was angry, but he was without sin. There is a righteous anger that is not a sinful anger. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Hmm. I remember earlier in our marriage, long ago, I'm sure you've never had this experience if you're a married couple, but Shirley's a sensitive, sensitive person. We should all be. And if things are not right, she can't go to sleep. Well, I normally take a while to get to sleep at night, lie there, and, and so I know when Shirley goes up, sometimes as we're praying, as we're committing the night to God, she's already asleep before I finish my prayer. That's not necessarily a long prayer, so she can just go off like that. But I know when she's awake, now, of course, this is speaking years ago, you know, last century. So Shirley's awake, I'm awake. Time goes by and then she would say, well, 
when are we going to talk about that? Well, some of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and I would say, talk about what? And she would say, you know, I don't know. What should we talk about? You know, I don't know. I mean, I'm a man, you know. We so finally it comes out, well, this morning you did this or this morning you said that. Oh, that, oh, wasn't a problem for me. That was dealt with quickly, but not for Shirley. You follow what I'm saying? And if we don't deal with those things or endeavour to deal with them the day they happen before the sun goes down, then things can begin to build and build and build. And uh, we can give place to an anger or a bitterness and things um, just because we're not dealing with things. So we learned early in our marriage that we would endeavour to deal with things when they came up, right? Any comments to make about that? No? Nothing? <laughs> and it only happened once, didn't it? <laughs> In case you don't know, men and women are different. Young people, men and women are different. And it takes about three to five million times for men to get some things sometimes. Um, we can hear, hear, hear again and again and again. What are you laughing about back there? Huh? You know what I'm talking about. Oh, I see. Yes. Well, I can see what the scripture says. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with things if you possibly can or at least begin to deal with them the day they arise. It's so important that we do that. Why? Because it's possible to give place to the devil. Or not the devil himself, he's not so interested in us. Uh, right now, if there's any location he's personally involved in or present, it could be a country like Venezuela or uh, he could be in Israel uh, or Iran. Uh, in person he would be there. He's not omnipresent as God is. And so when God says don't give place to the devil, it's not the devil himself but a spirit representing the devil, normally. But we do know with Judas, Satan entered into him. That was an important time that he would do that. Uh, Hebrews 12, verses 14 to 15. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Spirit, soul, and body. Our spirit, the most holy place. Our soul, the holy place. Our body, the house in which our spirit and soul abide. Some years ago I was in a church in um, a European nation that was the foundational church of this particular denomination. And the evangelist of that uh, denomination He's been a good friend for many years. He's now the leader of that whole movement in, in that country. He said to me, oh, Graham, nothing much is going to happen in that church because a lot of older people, it's pretty set in its ways, um, so don't expect too much to happen. Well, he was wrong in what he said. And I took four nights of meetings in the church, and not only were the people in that local church, but uh, other churches, satellite churches that had been formed through that mother church, uh, people came, pastors came. Uh, it was a good gathering. And after teaching, 
that first night, I began to pray over the congregation and often uh, when I do so, praying on mass, um, things are happening and sometimes not dramatic at all, but this particular night it was dramatic. And there were three situations that I recall where there were some major demonic manifestations taking place. I had to get busy in those situations, but I thought, well, I won't touch this lady over here because she was brought by her pastor and some people in her church and they are busy ministering to her. Well, the next night the same thing happened. It was kind of a noisy place and uh, um, it was interesting. I was staying with a youth, youth pastor of the church who came from Brazil. And uh, on the second night, the elders met together. Uh, they were concerned about the manifestations taking the church. Not that they were taking place, but they were concerned that the young people might be upset or afraid. And the youth pastor said to me, I come from Brazil. This is normal church life in Brazil. And it wasn't upsetting the youth at all. They were actually quite excited with what God was doing. So it was the older people that were concerned, uh, but the young people were excited with the presence of God working. So the second night, same thing. And there were these dramatic manifestations in a few places, and I didn't get involved with this lady because her pastor was with her. There was a team. The same thing happened the third night. And I thought, I've got to be involved now. So I went over to where they were praying for this lady, and she would be running around. Um, there were spirits speaking out through her mouth, mocking uh, the pastor and those that were ministering to her. It was quite, quite wild. And I said, let's just settle down, let's just talk. I asked some questions. What's going on here? Well, eight years ago, this woman's husband committed suicide. And she got so angry that she's never forgiven her husband for what he did and left her with all the burdens and so on and so on. I said, stop praying deliverance for her. You're wasting your time. Until she's willing to repent, until she's willing to deal with that, you're not going to deal with the demonic. And so they stop praying, they talk with her and begin to reason with her, you need to forgive your husband, your former husband, from your heart. Well, the next night, the fourth night, uh, a good meeting and just as it came time for, for personal ministry, that lady came right to the front row and sat right in front of me and what she was saying, because I don't speak the language, what she was saying to me, me was, I've dealt with that bitterness in my heart. I've forgiven my husband from my heart. I just knew by her action that is what she was saying. So I sat alongside of her and I began to pray. And I can only liken it to uh, taking a knife and just cutting through a soft block of butter. You know what it's like if there's been a block of butter in the freezer? You take it out and you try and cut something off and the knife slips because it's hard. You follow? But if you put it in the microwave just for a few seconds, you take the knife, phew, just goes through so easy. It was just like that. It was just like praying, uh, cutting through a block of, of, of soft butter. I had my hand upon her, laying on her hands, and uh, it was so easy to pray, and she was just being set free of all the stuff that she carried for eight years, the bitterness, the anger. Now, she knew Jesus. She was a member of a, of, of a good church, but she had given place to the devil. That that bitterness had defiled her and perhaps others through her. But that night or the night before, she had forgiven from her heart. Now she was able to receive from God. And it was just so wonderful to pray for her and to see the transformation that took place. 
And I could tell you a story like that again and again and again of God's power working when people are willing to deal with the sin and want to be cleansed inside and Jesus to be rightfully Lord in a person's life. I want us to um, make a declaration together today, a wonderful declaration that Shirley and I have probably said multitudes of times over the years. And we, we've got it on the overhead. It's a confession for overcomers by, by the late Derek Prince. And uh, this man was truly a prince of preachers. And uh, he would come to our church in Australia and have days and meetings at a time. And this is a paraphrase. You think of it. This is a scriptural paraphrase. There are verses that go with each of these statements. My body is a temple for the Holy Spirit, redeemed, cleansed, and sanctified by the blood of Jesus. My members, the parts of my body, are instruments of righteousness, yielded to God for his service and for his glory. The devil has no place in me, no power over me, no unsettled claims against me. All has been settled by the blood of Jesus. I overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of my testimony, and I love not my life unto the death. My body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for my body. That's the word, the word, the word, the word. And it's so good to have the word in our hearts, the words in our minds, and to be saying what the word of God says. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it deals with the enemy. It breaks the power of the enemy. So could I encourage you to stand, please? And let's just say this through together. Uh, maybe we should speak it through twice. The first time we'll get used to these words. The second time we can just enter in even more fully. Talking to those of us who have surrendered our lives to Jesus as Lord. If we've allowed our temple to be defiled, why don't you just lift your heart to God right now and say, Lord, please forgive me all of my sins. <laughs> please forgive me for the bitterness, the unforgiveness I've been carrying towards this one or that one. Let's deal with the sin in our life. Let's allow the blood of Jesus to be sprinkled upon our soul, so to speak. So as we make this declaration, we're doing so as those that are choosing to walk in the light, have a close relationship with God, we want to speak forth scriptural truth. So let's first of all say it together. My body is a temple for the Holy Spirit, redeemed, cleansed and sanctified by the blood of Jesus. My members, the parts of my body, are instruments of righteousness, yielded to God for his service and for his glory. The devil has no place in me, no power over me, no unsettled claims against me. All has been settled by the blood of Jesus. I overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of my testimony, and I love not my life unto the death. My body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for my body. It's a great declaration, isn't it? It's so good to know the truth and to speak the truth. Father, we just will declare this again before you today as those who have surrendered our lives to Jesus, your Son. And we just dedicate our lives afresh, spirit, soul and body, for your glory. We want light, your light, to shine into every part of our being. 
Lord, we want no bitterness, no unforgiveness, no sin to be binding us in any area of our lives. And so with confidence, we declare what the scriptures say. And we thank you for making these truths more and more real in our lives. Okay, let's declare again. My body is a temple for the Holy Spirit, redeemed, cleansed, and sanctified by the blood of Jesus. My members, the parts of my body, are instruments of righteousness, yielded to God for his service and for his glory. The devil has no place in me, no power over me, no unsettled claims against me. All has been settled by the blood of Jesus. I overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of my testimony, and I love not my life unto the death. My body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for my body. And Father, we just thank you so much for the precious blood of Jesus. His life poured out for us that we might embrace righteousness, the gift of righteousness, so we can walk in your ways by the power of your word and by the power of your spirit. Lord, please help us all to keep short accounts with you, that if anything comes in the way, we will deal with it quickly. If any thing of bitterness wants to get a hold of our lives, we'll deal with it quickly. Lord, we don't want to give any foothold to the enemy to, to bind us in any way. We choose to walk in the light. And so we dedicate our lives afresh today, these temples of ours, our spirit, soul, and body, to the glory of God. We choose to walk in obedience with you, Lord, all the days of our lives. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you.